This is the Unraveled Podcast with hosts Caleb Aring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Caleb Aring. I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to Unraveled. In last week's episode, we wrapped up with where the investigation was at right before the trial started. And the investigation continued to go on um, throughout the trial. Uh, the private investigator that was working on the case was was saying how this was the first time he'd ever worked on a case like this, that while a trial was happening and underway and evidence is being presented, the, the investigation is still happening. But as we prepare for our first day of the trial, the investigator basically has a list of suspects who he believes are candidates for who could be responsible for the disappearance of Denise Haraway. There are other people that should be looked into that hold much more probability than Tommy and Carl. So with the trial starting, you know, like Nicole said, the investigation is still going on, but now the attorneys are focused on the trial and what's going to happen in the trial. The first part of a trial, the first time after the preliminary hearing that all of the parties, the attorneys, uh, Tommy and Carl, the judge, that they'll all be in court together is for jury selection. Now, prior to jury selection, the attorneys could file motions if they want to. And one motion that I think Nicole and I really expected to see in this case that didn't happen was a request for a change of venue. And what that means is that the attorneys would ask for the trial to be held somewhere other than in Ada. And Nicole, why would an attorney ask for that? Well, I'm not an attorney, but my thinking would be that you would not want to hold a trial. You and you definitely would not want to pull jurors from a community that was as deeply impacted by the disappearance of a person. You know, the disappearance of Denise Haraway had the entire town. People had chosen sides. You know, we remember when we talked about just looking for an attorney to take these cases, that there were attorneys saying they would rather lose their um, their bar card than, than represent one of these individuals. You had a town that was completely, uh, this was being played out in the media. It was on the news. It was in the paper. Everything was being, um, you know, the police were giving information, some information, not giving other information. So the whole town was, was wrapped into it. So I can't imagine why you would possibly want to choose jurors from there. Yeah, so the town was really wrapped up in what was happening, and this was reported on a lot in the media. And like Nicole said, some information was getting out into the media and and some wasn't. And, you know, we mentioned at one point when uh, Don Wyatt finally had the opportunity to speak at a hearing, he mentioned the fact that this was all based on a confession of a dream. But even, even that was the first time that someone had mentioned that in public, but it didn't make it into the papers. So what you have is a town full of people who are really heavily invested in this case for a number of reasons, including that it's a small town and a lot of people knew and loved Denise Haraway um, and were really afraid of what was happening and were being told one very specific narrative. These kids confessed. We know that they did it. 
everything in their confessions adds up, and that's it. And so when you're looking at a group of people like that, it's going to be hard to find people who haven't already made up their mind about their case. And when you're a jury, when you're a juror, you are expected to come into it not taking into consideration anything that you have read about the case. Ideally, you wouldn't have read anything about the case at all, and you're coming into it basically as like this blank canvas, this fresh palette to learn what happened and make a decision about what you're being told. And that's going to be hard to find in Ada because the town is just really invested in this. Uh, but for whatever reason, that really doesn't make much sense at all. Neither one of these attorneys asked for a change of venue. So we know why the DA wouldn't ask for a change of venue. I mean, the DA, this works well in their favor to have the, the trial play out in Ada. But is it solely the responsibility of the defense to attorneys to ask for a change of venue? Um, is that something that's difficult to get done? Is it up to the judge? Does the judge decide? Yeah, so it is up to the judge to make the decision, but it's up to the attorneys to make a motion. And you're only going to make that motion if you think it's going to help your case. So... There's no reason that Bill Peterson, the district attorney, is going to make that motion uh, because it's not going to hurt his case. So it it's up to the two defense attorneys, to, to Don Wyatt and Carl's defense attorney, to make that motion. And neither one of them does. And yet both of their clients would have been... I think, in, incredibly well served by a change of motion. I think they could have found a jury outside of Ada who knew much less about the case and who maybe hadn't formed opinions about the case yet. Yeah. And, and jurors could come in and say, potential jurors could come in and say, I haven't formed an opinion about the case, but there's still all of this knowledge that they have. They aren't coming in as a blank slate. So with that said, there is no motion for a change of venue. So jury selection starts in Ada County. And what happens with jury selection is that a large group of people who get a jury summons come in and they get asked lots and lots of questions by a judge, by the attorneys, to determine who is and is not eligible to be on the jury. And a lot of times you can get excused right away if it would create a real hardship um, on you or your family or something like that. And then the attorneys and the judge will excuse people, and there are two different types of strikes that can happen when doing jury selection. And what a strike is, is the attorney or the judge says, this person is not eligible. If the attorney says it, the judge has to agree, and then that person gets stricken, and basically they just they get sent home and they're done. And so a four-cause strike means that that person is being stricken from the jury pool because there is some reason that they aren't eligible. It may be that they are related to Tommy Ward, or in one case there was someone who worked with Tommy's brother-in-law and felt that 
if Tommy's brother-in-law were to testify, he would give that testimony more credit than someone else's testimony. And so for that reason, he was stricken for cause and he was told to go home because he wouldn't be able to be impartial. And I think, Nicole, you noticed that there were a lot of for cause strikes in this yeah. I mean, people were just left and right. I, I, mean, I think as we read through what was happening with the jurors, it was really proving to be difficult to find folks that had not been somehow connected. Either they had an opinion about it, um, which I was impressed that people would admit to, yes, having a strong opinion, because I believe everybody had a strong opinion. Even if you said, oh, I've read it and I can be impartial, I just don't, I find that hard to believe that you could have been this invested in the case and then somehow drop the opinions you have about it. But other than that, it was also, you know, we have to remember the amount of people that are going to be called to testify. I mean, these huge swaths of of Denise's family and the Haraways, like there are so many people coming onto the stand that they cannot be connected to any of the jurors. So now you have these tentacles that go out so far that I found that to be interesting, that there were people that were so far removed from the case but still were being um, deemed not appropriate because of they were a teacher at somewhere or they were, you know, knew this person from work or there were all of these reasons. So it was proven to be difficult to find a jury. So, and that's just the for-cause strike. So that's when there's a reason and that person gets sent home. And there are an unlimited number of for-cause strikes that can be used when doing jury selection. Now, once for-cause strikes have been gone through and all of those people are taken out of the potential jury pool, then each attorney gets a limited number of preemptory strikes. And these preemptory strikes, you can strike people for a variety of reasons. Um, those reasons legally cannot have to do with race or gender. Uh, however, I think there are a number of cases where they do have to do with race or gender, but if you can't prove that that is why that strike is being made, um, then you kind of have to they have to deal with it. There's not much you can do about it. Uh, but usually you might see um, if somebody's family member is in law enforcement and maybe not a detective that's involved in this case, but someone who would give people in law enforcement the benefit of the doubt or hold their word higher than other people's word, that might be somebody who you would want to use a preemptory strike for if you're the defense attorney because uh, you would be worried that that person would believe what the law enforcement uh, witnesses have to say and maybe not give credit to non-law enforcement uh, witnesses. And this is, I, honestly, it is a crapshoot and there's a lot of guessing that goes into it. Some attorneys that have far, far, far more resources than we're dealing with in this case, might hire psychological experts to try and get a perfect profile of your ideal juror, you know, who they are, whether they have family, whether what type of job they work, all of those sorts of details, and then try to match someone to that profile. In this case, um, 
number one, they didn't have the money for that. And number two, I'm not sure that that was very prevalent at all back in the 80s in jury selection. Um, but you would see that nowadays with attorneys that had yeah, more resources. It was interesting to me when I was reading about the jury selection in this. I mean, it even went down to there. It goes on later on that this one woman, in, you know, the DA tries to get her removed because it is rumored that she has a husband on in jail, you know, and that this was this this thing that they looked at and said, oh, well, she has a husband in jail, therefore she will be sympathetic to people in jail. It was it was these very kind of far out there, you know, she didn't get removed. She said she didn't have a husband in jail, but, you know, um, Don Wyatt was really excited because like, oh, well, maybe she does and maybe she did at one time, you know. And, and maybe it's she'll my be like work on in our, our favor. Side. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, it's really interesting the, the kind of, the guesswork and and Don Wyatt had been had talked about saying oh it was just a gut thing he went off of he knew when the jurors were right you know he had a lot of experience in doing this work he had done a lot of criminal case defense cases so it was it's just um it gets very kind of um murky yeah 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 and and one thing also that i wanted to mention when we talked about the strikes for cause that i forgot to mention um so this case is a death penalty case. So if Tommy and Carl are convicted, they both would potentially face being on death row and ultimately executed. And so one of the questions that is asked when determining the strikes for cause is whether or not you are opposed to the death penalty. And if you don't believe in the death penalty, if you are opposed to the use of the death penalty, then you are automatically stricken for cause and sent home because it's believed that you wouldn't be able to make an impartial decision on the case if Tommy and Carl would be potentially be put to death if they were found guilty. And there is one woman who's removed for exactly that. Well, oh, and, but to me, what's shocking is out of, I think, almost 100 people that they yeah, had, yeah. only one person, and I mean, I guess this was the 80s, but only one person was stricken for having a conviction against the death penalty. Yeah, but the attorneys at the time were actually surprised about that as well because they said that that was a newer thing that was happening, that people, they were finding now jurors, there were less and less people that were opposed to the death penalty, where at one time there were really high numbers, you know, which is interesting, the sort of change in that over time, like what... What and that could be, you know, what is happening culturally? What could, what is happening in the news? You know, I or think, even in the region, right? I think it's interesting when you start thinking about areas that decide to get very tough on crime um, versus, you know, have a more laxed attitude or what is perceived as a more laxed attitude. You know, this sort of change in what seems appropriate. And in 1984, I guess people were down with the death penalty in Oklahoma. Well, and you know. I, I guess I, I understand that that would prejudice someone who's making a decision. And I think in most states nowadays, they sever the hearing and the uh, sentencing. And so what that means is that there is one jury and one trial that determines whether or not someone is guilty, and then a different jury and a different trial to determine whether or not that person should be put oh. to death or what the punishment should be for that person. 
Um, so in that case, if if it had been that way back then, this woman would have been able to stay because she wouldn't be making a decision about the death penalty. She would only be making a decision about guilt or innocence. And but going into this trial, they the knew that this jury was, if they had found them guilty, that they were going to be deciding their their fate as well. And whether and or not so that's not always the case. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think I think nowadays there are very very few states where that is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would have to believe that someone who is against the death penalty would look at a case uh, in a different light than maybe someone who isn't against the death penalty. And I would have to think that that sort of a four-cause strike, like having that as part of it, is something that potentially really hurt the defense team and really hurt Tommy and Carl. And I guess maybe it's not as big of a deal because there's only one person in this whole pool of potential juries. But that... You know, that sort of a thing, being a preemptory strike, is, I think, probably really going to go against a defense, whether we're talking about this case with Tommy and Carl or some other case. Mm. So that's jury selection. They go on for a while. A lot of people get... A couple of days, yeah. Yeah. Some people get stricken for cause. Others get stricken um, with preemptory strikes. And eventually they whittle it down to 12 jurors and two alternates who are going to hear the case. And that is how jury selection wraps up. Once jury selection ends, the next day the actual trial starts. Um, And that is... You know, the sort of thing that you see on TV, like that part of the trial doesn't quite happen the way you see it on TV, but that's the part that we're getting into. So the first thing that happens is opening statements. And because there are three attorneys, each one of them gets to make an opening statement. And that opening statement basically should include all of the information that they believe that they are going to prove in trial. It's not a place to make arguments about what did and didn't happen. It's about what proof that you have that you're going to present to the jury. You're making promises to them about what you're going to give to them in this trial. And so all three of them have the opportunities to do their opening statements. And we just want to touch really briefly about what the the district attorney's witnesses said. So the district attorney gets to present their witnesses first. And pretty much the district attorney presented all of the same people that they presented in the preliminary hearing. Those people said more or less the exact same things that they said in the preliminary hearing. And the district attorney was really trying to prove a handful of main things in the case. They were trying to prove that Tommy's hair had been longer at the time that Denise disappeared, uh, that he would have had access to a truck, that Denise herself was in fact dead, that she wouldn't have just run away and never come back, that she must be dead. Um, And then they were also trying to prove that she was wearing a floral blouse and that Tommy and Carl were at J.P.'s. And that was pretty much it. And then again, just like we mentioned when we talked about the preliminary hearing, there was this whole discrepancy about 
the witnesses, and one witness is claiming to have seen Tommy at McAnally's at 7.45, and then the other witness, who's, who are responsible for the sketches that you know Nicole and I have said time and time again, we think are irrelevant, but nonetheless are the crux of this case, but the sketches of the people who were at JP's uh, that are being identified as being Tommy and Carl, but that they were at JP's until 8.30, and meanwhile... The DA is presenting these witnesses saying they're there till 8.30 and also presenting a witness saying that Tommy at the exact same time at 7.45 while he was supposed to be at JP's was also at McAnally's. I mean, it's ridiculous. How is it not being picked up that there are people saying that these individuals are two different places at the same time and why that isn't the kind of thing that's being hammered upon, you know? Why aren't we saying, this doesn't make any sense? Why isn't it stopping people right in their tracks? Like, this doesn't make any sense, what you're saying, because there are people now that are saying very different stories, and that it's... And I think what my mind does, it always comes back to this, like, well... We have these tapes, and so we don't have to do our... It's okay if this comes out kind of sloppy. Because at the end of the day, we have these tapes, and these tapes are the biggest kind of deciding factor for us. So everything else can kind of be sloppy. Because I can't understand any other reasoning behind it of why these things are not being picked up or or not presented in the first place, really. Well, and I, I think that in an ideal world, the jury would be like, wait. What? How is this possible? Um, and and maybe some of the jurors were, but then they saw the tapes and they thought, well, well it doesn't matter. Like, obviously they did it. Um, but the other thing is, you know, the, the jury has a lot of information coming at them all at once, really. And we are really summarizing this a lot right now and, like, putting it in a quick little package um, and just pulling out the important things. But the jury is there listening to people drone on and on and on. um, And they can't be expected to pick up on this stuff on their own. Um, And a good defense attorney should be bringing this up, and they should be doing it in a couple of different ways. So... um, This is the exact same testimony that came out in the preliminary hearing, which means they already have a record of sworn testimony that one person has testified that he was at JP's, while another person has testified at the same time that he was at McAnally's. And some of this testimony is shaky. So what you have to do is prove that these people are wrong. And so if, you know, if this was my case, one of the things that I would ask Um, the person who was testifying saying Tommy was at JP's from 7.30 to 8.30 is, I would, on cross-examination, I would say, would it change your testimony if you knew that someone else said under oath that they saw Tommy at McAnally's at 7.45? And the answer might be yes, it might be no, but then you have brought it to the attention of the jury that, hey, somebody here isn't telling the truth. I think that's a great point. Something here isn't adding up. You know, as a that when you are a defense attorney, you actually have to get the things you want the jury to pay attention to to come up to the surface. Mm-hmm. Because when we think of what a jury is going through, they're spending hours after hours after hours. And in like the case of the what who the DA is putting on the stand, they put on 
countless people that go up there for maybe one to three minutes and just all they are doing are character witnesses for Or even just saying Tommy's hair was longer before he cut it. And so it's person after person and if you're in the position of a juror, how you stay alert, how you stay focused with what's going on, how you stay present with the case and the information that it seems like you're saying like the defense attorney's job is to bring the things that are not making any sense kind of up to the surface. Because a juror may kind of lose track of where we're even at. Well, and as a defense attorney, at least as I was taught to do it, if I am giving a closing argument or I am questioning and I'm about to get a big piece of information, I will physically move to another part of the room so that if the jury is zoning out, that act will get their attention. Because you so want them to come back, back to you. Right, yeah. right. That's interesting. Um, right? But those are just, I mean, those are things that I learned in trial classes and not not every attorney is going to do those things. Right. And we don't know if they were moving around the room, but we do know that these pieces were not kind of brought up to the surface of like, hey, here's something you should pay attention to because we have conflicting stories, right? Like, like remember that. Lodge that in your mind. There's Because I, I keep trying to hold on to with this looking at the trial trials can be very dry to read and and what they're trying to prove right and all that going into the trial it was all they had to do was prove a reasonable doubt that Tommy and Carl did it right we don't have to say yes they're absolutely innocent there's no way they did this or this is crazy um, I think looking back on it it may be easier to from our perspective to kind of see it differently but at the time you're just trying to get the jury to have the seed of like I don't know, you know? And I think something like this, where you have these conflicting stories of where they were at what time, is enough, those moments of like, uh, that's kind of weird, you know? Yeah, and so, and the other thing is, as a defense attorney, you're not necessarily going to badger these witnesses if it seems like there isn't really ill intent, that maybe they're just mistaken, because if you badger the witnesses... Then you just look like an asshole, and then the jury doesn't like you, and they're not listening to you. Right, right. you start to plant those seeds of doubt just by asking those questions, and then they're like, well, you know, I don't know if it would change my testimony. I still think I saw Tommy there. And you just leave it at that. Leave it. But then it's your job as the defense attorney, when you get to do your closing argument, is that you take these little pieces, and you tie them up in this nice, neat, package you you take all of this confusing long drawn out testimony that's happened over the course of days or in some trials weeks and you sum it up and you make these big points and when you're making a big point you walk to another spot in the room and you're like you really and he was also at right, this, right. at McAnally's at 7:45 so one of these witnesses isn't telling the truth right. and if the witness from JP's isn't telling the truth then who was the second person? Because everybody's claiming it was Carl Fontenot and that the two of them were at JP's. Or if the witness at McAnally's is the one who is telling the truth, then, you know, but like really Really putting it it together. So as a defense attorney, that's your job. And, you know, I don't know why they didn't do it. I don't know if they didn't catch on to it. I don't know if because they were still having an investigation ongoing when this trial started that they hadn't focused enough on what these witnesses were saying. They were too busy trying to find other information. Right, right. I don't know, but this is like, it's one of those things 
that I see as a big failing mm-hmm. in this case. So that doesn't get picked up on. This is the bulk so far of what the district attorney does. And then we see Don Wyatt and George Butner, the attorneys for Carl and Tommy, uh, stand up and essentially make a motion to the judge um, that corpus delecte has not been proven. And so that means basically that they haven't proven that a crime has happened, that the, the, the body of a crime or basically the... the sufficient evidence to prove that a crime has happened isn't there. Right, because their charges are kidnapping, rape, and murder. So they're saying, the corpus electi, if I understand it correctly, is like saying, you have to prove that these three things happened. You're charging them with this. You have to prove that this actually yeah. happened. And and so out of it seems very abruptly on the like fifth day of the trial, they kind of move for a motion and say, this is, they we want an acquittal because this has not been proven. And the judge immediately overrules it, and the trial just kind of picks up. It's like these moments, it seems like there's this brief moment of, hey, let's let's try for this, and then the judge says no, and then they just, they kind of re-pick up. Yeah, and the, I believe it's right around the time that they wanted to start introducing some of the tapes. And so I think that the motion was made at that time because of that, um, because the only real proof of these crimes is these confession tapes. So I think they wanted to make that motion before that was entered in. Um, But it was overruled. And the defense attorney played the... Even before playing the two confession tapes that we saw before, they also played one of Tommy's interrogation tapes, which was surprising that they wanted that to be played because in this actual interrogation tape we see Tommy professing his innocence. So this interrogation tape was one that we talked about really, really early on in this podcast. Um, when Tommy first went in and... and Just agreed to go down, answer some questions, mm-hmm. and was questioned for... That tape is over two hours long. In that entire tape, he is never breaks that he is innocent, that he has not done this. This is also the time where he agrees to come back again and take a lie detector test. This is his very first questioning that he had. Um, This is not with Featherstone, who would give him the lie detector test. This is with um, Dennis Smith. And he, that I, I was confused on why they would show that, because this is him basically professing that he has not done it for over two hours. And I think Wyatt and Butner moving in, don't understand why the tape's being shown either. But Be- they want it in. They want they want a tape of their client saying that he's innocent. Yeah, and I think they really felt like it was working in their favor. This tape was going to work in their favor. And I think these kind of things will add up to something at the end of this trial when you have maybe an attorney who's feeling like, oh, okay, this is moving in our direction. This is working well for us. This tape got played. I don't know why they want to play it, but let's let him play it. So they do. What I know... From a, from a defense standpoint, I would definitely want the tape in where my client is saying he's innocent. But I also know if I'm cross-examining someone um, and I have the opportunity to show that they have told at least two different stories, that what I can do with that is say, this person can't be trusted. 
I don't know if they're telling the truth now. I don't know if they were telling the truth before. Or I don't know if the truth is something totally different because they're obviously a liar. Mm -hmm. Um, And that it may be that they kind of wanted to set that up. That maybe what uh, Bill Peterson, the district attorney, was thinking was that, yeah, Tommy's confession tape doesn't really match anything that happened. So if we can just establish that he's a liar we can tell the jury what is true and what's not true that he said. So it's true that he abducted Denise. It's true that they, you know, that he raped and killed Denise. But he lied about all the details because he was hoping to get away with it. And he would do that because he's a liar. So if we can kind of make them look like liars um, by even having two tapes that have conflicting information. Here's a tape where he's saying, I'm innocent. Here's a tape where he's saying, I'm guilty. Now we've made him look like somebody who... Lies. Um, who lies? Yeah, that's and the only thing I can come up with. Why the why they would play would it? Do yeah, because we don't really know why they did it. So they play that tape. Um, I think they maybe call a couple more witnesses um, to prove pretty much the exact same things that they've been proving, and then they play the two confession tapes. Um, I think. Uh, before they play Tommy's confession tape, Tommy's attorney objects again, um, it gets and overruled. it's overruled. Same thing with and Carl. And this is the eighth day of the trial. You know, they didn't come out swinging with the tapes. They did a lot. I mean, and from a jury's perspective, right, they have now on their eighth day of trial, they're getting paid like 12 bucks a day to be there. Um, they are eating with these folks, staying in a hotel with these folks. They are, you know, I think about it in terms of them, of, of it almost works in a DA's favor to just just kind of wear them down, you know? Get them to have to listen to 50 people talk about how nice Denise Haraway is and then kind of come out with these tapes at and the end. And then see these kids, you know, saying that they did all of these and terrible things And the tapes are, are to terrible her. to listen to, I right? mean, they're I think they're horrific. And if you're coming at it from the perspective that you believe what's being said, which, I, you know, we had Jim Trainum on the show. We talked about... Um, false confessions, but we also talked about how most, how a lot of people don't think that they would ever be prone to a false confession, and for that reason, I think that a lot of people think that other people don't give false confessions. Um, And so, yeah, you you get these confessions that people feel like must be real, and it doesn't matter what the, you know, what what person said that Tommy was at McAnally's at 7.45 and at JP's at 8.30 or whatever, you know, you see these tapes and you think, I would never confess to something I didn't and do. And give detail, right? Because we have to remember, we went through those tapes to some extent, and we, I mean, that was an episode where we tried to talk about them as much as we could in a way that made sense, but you have these you have these tapes that are at times very graphic, right? They're giving very graphic details of what they've done to her, what they've done to her body, you know, and there is going to be this kind of visceral reaction in a jury that they are Terrible now people. right now this is the last and, and this is you know the state goes on to rest after that it's like they drop the tapes after all these days they give this this powerhouse these two tapes and then they say okay you that's know it. that's our side there now try to defend that right and it's and it's uh it's a tactic and it and it those tapes, I think, ever since talking to Jim Trainum, I have I always come back to the these tapes, and and whenever I have a question about, well, why did they do this? On why did they do that? And I always think, oh, because there's these tapes. So 
it was a it was a done deal for the DA. They were like, yeah, we've got you know, and just the power of them. I I really just think of Jim's words saying, trying to fight a case that has a confession tape is an upward upward battle, uphill battle, you know. And I just keep thinking about that over and over again of what you know these two defense attorneys were up against when you have these tapes on there. You know, it's the the power of them, and that this is something that is prevalent, right? There are yeah. so many trials that go on with confession tapes and now I just feel like they should never be allowed to be shown in court um, after talking to Jim Trainum and and how people are trained to do interrogations yeah and so and like you said that's it you know the um, the state the district attorney rested with that they had put on a, a pretty good case um, and that was it and then next it was going to be each of the defense attorneys were going to have their turn to present their case After the district attorney rests, the defense gets to put on their case. And the way that defense attorneys handle defending a witness, I think, has evolved a lot over time. And there have always been um, some pretty zealous defense attorneys out there. But back in the day, there was a, a different... I guess a different way of going about defense from what we see these days. And uh, a lot of what you see on like law and order isn't real. And a lot of what they do would never be allowed in court. But, you know, you see defense attorneys fighting really hard for their clients. There was a time where defense attorneys wouldn't do anything. You would see... So the burden is on the state. It's on the district attorney to prove the crime. Um, And it's a really high burden. That burden is beyond a reasonable doubt. And so there was a time when there was this idea amongst a lot of defense attorneys that you didn't have to do anything. The burden was on the state, and if you didn't feel they had met the burden, then there wasn't anything you had to do. You just said, you, you told the jury how they hadn't met their burden, and that was it. So your job was to just point out how they hadn't done their job. Yeah. It wasn't to defend what they were saying or it wasn't to defend your clients. It was just to say, here's what they said, this isn't correct, and we're and kind of move on from there. Basically, and I think there were, you know, at least many, many years ago, there were a lot of district att- or defense attorneys who did it that mm-hmm. way. Um, but it's really progressed in this day and age, and people really realized that you have to you have to do something more than that. It doesn't the jury doesn't care that the burden legally is on the district attorney. The The jury doesn't mm-hmm. see it that way. They don't see, like, okay, they had to prove it this much, and you don't have to do anything. So, like, let's say, Nicole, you and I are at a party, and I leave my wallet on the table by where you're standing, and there's nobody else standing there, and I come back, and my wallet is gone, and... Our friends are now around us, and I say, Nicole, you stole my wallet. It was on the table. You were the only person there, and now it's gone. I don't have proof that you did it. I didn't see you do it. I didn't have hidden cameras Mm -hmm. that saw you do it. Mm -hmm. But I'm standing there in front of all of our friends 
saying that you stole it. Mm-hmm. Even if one of our friends says, well, maybe she didn't. You didn't actually see her steal it. It was just there. She was there. And now it's gone. Right. But you're standing there and you're not saying anything. Mm-hmm. And like our friends saying, well, maybe she didn't do it. That's kind of like a weak closing argument. Mm-hmm. But if you said, I didn't steal your wallet. I walked to the kitchen. I wasn't even standing here the whole time. You weren't watching. You said that. You said you weren't watching because you didn't still see me take it. Uh-huh. So you don't know that I was standing by the table the whole time. I walked away. I wasn't watching your wallet. It's not my wallet. But if you're standing there and you're saying nothing and all that people have to go off is me saying that you took it and mm-hmm. someone else saying, well, I guess maybe some, you know, maybe aliens could have come in and taken right. it. And so you really do have to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. Otherwise... People are, all of our friends are going to stand there. And it almost makes you look guilty. Yeah. yeah. Just to not defend yourself. Almost, I would think from a, you know, from a juror's perspective, if I was on a jury, I'm not, you know, I'm not an attorney. And if I think if I, if I saw a district attorney's office give all of this information to me and say, da, 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 you know, really hammer their points. And then it became the defense, defense's time. And they say, oh. But he didn't really prove that. You know what I mean? I, I, my, in my gut would say, oh, there's something, there's something wrong here. You know, there's something wrong because why can't you defend it? Why haven't you been able to defend your side and say, no, this is why it's, it's clear I didn't do this. Why can't you tell me what you were doing when my wallet disappeared? Right, right, right. Exactly. That's Um, a great example. And so, I mean, luckily what we see here with uh, Don Wyatt and George Butner is that they're, much more diligent defense attorneys than that, but I definitely think that maybe there was more that they could have done. But before we get into what they could have done, Nicole, do you want to tell us some about what they did do? Yeah, so going in to the trial, it seemed that they were clear kind of what they, their big key witnesses, right? So we're not going to go over everything that they went over because there was, we have to remember the investigation is still going on. Now, the the man who has been acting as a private investigator for Don Wyatt's office is also now been decided he is going to be a witness on the stand, right? So this is another kind of spin I think that was rare for him is that while an investigation is still going on, he's also going to be called as a witness. So, But going in, Wyatt had this, this kind of plan where he was going to prove that Tommy's hair had been cut a week before Denise's disappearance. And then he had Joyce and Robert, who they were key witnesses because they were an alibi for Tommy. Both of them had stories about how they were home, they were hung over from a party, they were home all day, um, and that they had got, you know, Joyce had gone to bed, she had woken up, and Tommy and Robert were outside trying to fix a, a, a leaky pipe. The water had been shut off in the house. Like, they had a, a solid story. You know, Don Wyatt wasn't feeling super um, confident moving into it, moving forward. You know, all of his witnesses are being prepped. There's tons of work going into prepping these witnesses. They're prepping, you know, Ms. Ward. They're prepping Trisha, who was Tommy's sister. And... You know, these are folks that have never been in a position like this. The stakes are super, super high. And Wyatt is trying to be very clear with them. You know, with somebody like Joyce and Robert, there are a couple that this story has to be absolutely 
crystal clear that if there is any moment where you're not sure about time, you could maybe be sure, unsure of dates, anything that the district attorney's office is going to make sure to hammer those points. And so, you know, he, I think, had some fear moving forward about what, you know, the how these folks were going to hold up in court. But, um... And the other thing that his plan was, he was going to establish that the police coerced these confessions. He was going to... So that's... He's got to go after the tapes, right? He can't just act like the tapes haven't... You know, he really wants to bring into light that um, these were coerced confessions and and tries to talk about the tactics that the police used. And I think the I, I get what he's doing, but I think the really difficult thing... And I think part of this goes back to money, that they didn't have money to, like, hire a psychological expert. To, because it, it's just like Jim Trainum said, that you don't believe that you would ever give a false confession. And for that reason, you don't believe that anybody else would ever give a false confession. So even if he can prove, you know, this was coerced, the, the, the tactics that they used were not appropriate... Um, and on and on and on, a juror is going to sit there and say, well, the tactics might have been bad, but they got a confession, so they found the guy. Even if the tactics were bad, he confessed, so he must have done it. And I think that's a real, a real difficult thing that he's up against. Right. I mean, and they do talk about, you know, they do talk about uh, when the human bones were brought in during the, you know, to scare them and say, where are these bodies? And, and that they weren't, they didn't belong to Denise. They, they were bones they'd gotten from a lab, you know. They talked about it. And the, the, the thing is, is that everybody was able to kind of defend their side and say, I mean, at the end of the day, Don Wyatt was not able to successfully get across that these confessions were coerced. I mean, it just didn't, it just didn't, it just didn't happen. You know, they could say that, hey, we're missing, you know, it was pointed out that there were hours that were missing before the tape got turned on and that there were all of these things that said, okay, what, you know, but the, the tapes were played in court and the jury had a chance to listen to those tapes and feel like, you know, we went over those transcripts and we were able to see these points where, um, things were fed to them and things were maybe information they didn't have names correct, that there were things like that. But the jury is not doesn't have that ability to kind of go over it with a fine-tooth comb, you know, doesn't able to say, hey, does that seem clear? All they're catching up on are these heinous details and they're not really paying attention to, oh, how did the police ask that question? How did, you know, mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about it until after we had talked to Jim Trainum and who had really set our sights on like, these are the things to look for. Those transcripts, those transcripts looked very different to me after talking with him than they had before, right? I looked at them with a totally different eye. I'm like, oh, look at these places of where this isn't really good investigative work. Well, and I know also that um, I think it was Don Wyatt established when he was cross-examining some of the uh, witnesses for um, the district attorney, he established that you know the, the police probably knew uh, that Denise was wearing a floral blouse before they actually interrogated Tommy. Um, 
And so the point they're trying to make there is that the police probably fed that information to Tommy, whether purposely or not. Um, but what I can see a jury saying after saying in their head after hearing these horrific and detailed confessions is like, so what? So what if the police fed that to these men? Like, right? It's this idea it. of like we don't care how you got it. We're just happy that you got it, right? Like, yeah, like we don't care if you had. And we see it with uh, you know when you take polls on um, how interrogations are done during war, how these things are right. There's this belief, I think, that the methods don't affect the outcome, and I think that's the lie, right? Is yes. that like? If you have to be rough with them, if you have to be aggressive, if you have to lie, well, that's fine because you're getting that confession and that isn't affecting our, our end result, right? Yeah. Well, and I think, I think what the point you're trying to make is that what the jury is thinking is you had to use these methods to get the truth, not that because you used these methods, what you got was not the Absolutely. Truth. And Absolutely. that, I think, is the real shortcoming. So nine days into the trial, the defense starts, and the first person that they're going to call is Odell Titsworth, which I thought was an interesting place to start just because, um, you know, Odell would have been proven to not be involved in the case. That, that was already decided. That had been made, you know, public ages ago. But um, he comes up and he... He basically is called on to kind of talk about what the police were doing. That he was brought on to say that, um, you know, after several days of questioning, that he was left in solitary confinement, that he had been interrogated on four different occasions, that they were yelling at him, and they had acted crazy. Um, and they talked about, he talked about how after several days after questioning, that Captain Smith actually came to him and said, you know, it was just a dream Tommy Ward had. It was just a dream. Saying that, you know... Captain Smith had referenced this dream and um, was still charging them with this with this murder, and that he was la- the police later put Titsworth in a cell next to Ward and Fontenot when they were all being held in the hopes that he would get information from Tommy and Carl, but instead they both just kind of claimed that he they hadn't done it, and that Ward apologized to him for saying he was involved in saying, well, it was just a dream I had had, you know. So really they had brought him on the stand to really kind of talk about the behavior of the police and talk about um, this dream that Tommy had and even given an acknowledgement that the police even acknowledged that this was a dream. Now, mind you, Odell is not also a credible witness moving forward. I just want to say that, too, you know, that he came on the stand. He was involved in the case from very early on, that he was being brought on to say these things against the police. But he also had a long history of being anti-police, of being, um, you know, he had multiple felony charges, I think. It's an interesting move to start with him, but I also feel like in some ways, I don't know if he was that helpful. Boy, I have to wonder a little bit if it hurt their case. I mean, the defense attorneys are trying to prove that these tactics used by the police elicited a false confession, and yet they bring in Odell, who talks about all of these tactics... But he never gave a false confession. Right. And so I have to wonder if some of the jurors thought, well, 
How come didn't you didn't get, confess? He didn't give a confession because he didn't do it. Right. Therefore. Right. Even though we know that the reason Odell didn't give a confession is because Odell is very seasoned in dealing with police. He is very he is a different creature than Tommy and Carl, right? He was not um he, he was not going to break, right? And his alibi involved the police. Right, because they broke his arm. Right. So, But that's actually a great point, saying, you know, they, bringing him forward as their first witness might not have been the strongest place to start. But anyway, they do that. And then the next day goes on, you know, they bring on Joyce. Now, Joyce is huge because Joyce is Tommy's sister, and that's also his alibi. And Joyce does great on the stand, and... Um, Lastly, that day, they pull on... Now they bring up the private investigator, which I thought was really interesting to have the private investigator be called as a witness. Because here you have this individual who is currently still investigating this case. There are still... He is going down these long, windy roads. It would be impossible for us to explain it in any way that made sense to our listeners if we were to go into all of the scenarios he has He has kind of lined up. But he does get on the stand, and he basically... All he is trying to do is give doubt to the jury, right? And so he's going over... Not just this one, like, we found this person and we think this person did it. He's going over, like, what, maybe five or ten different people who possibly could have done this. Is that right? Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that she, he's, he's going, they, they knew moving forward, if we could get a name and an and a absolute on somebody else, yes, that would be ideal. Because they knew they were up against confession tapes. But... They weren't able to do that. They weren't able to get it that clear. He had some some great leads. He had some great information, but it was getting very murky. He had people that were not showing up to court. He had, you know, there were things happening that were making it so he couldn't give a lock tight. This is who did it. This is who we should be looking into. But the way that Don Wyatt was thinking about it was all we have to do is give the jury some doubt. That's all we have to do. And so that was what he did when he got on the stand is he just said, you know, these are these other possibilities. These are other things that we're looking into. There are things that are looking. And the way he kind of left it was there are individuals who are much more likely to have been involved in this case than Tommy and Carl. Well, and the tricky thing with that. I can see why the defense attorneys did it, and I understand it's the best that they had, but the juries want a story. The jur- a jury wants something that they can follow and understand. So even, you know, going back to that example with my wallet on the table, and I know that you were standing there, and then the next time I look, you're still standing there, and my wallet is gone. And I have that story. And you might come out and you say, well, it could have been, you know, it could have been Jimmy. It could have been Bobby. It could have been Sally. All of them were near your wallet as well. So maybe they could have done it. But you have no concrete story. But I'm telling a concrete story. My wallet was there. You were there. You took it. It's gone. And juries cling to concrete stories. And these little, like... Maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. And they're like, yeah, maybe all of those things. Or maybe it's this whole complete story that your client gave to us. So just having these potential leads 
And I think it just wasn't enough. No, and I think it wasn't enough. And I think that's exactly how it went. You know, he had, um, he talked about like the composite drawings, how they had looked like these other two individuals, right? And he talked about a truck that was photographed in this other town that was connected to somebody else he was looking into. And he, you know, he also talked about this like mystery man that was sitting in the back of the courtroom and was talking to Karen Wise on the side. You know, he had, and mind you, given more money and more time, I think he could have flushed a lot of this out. But you, they but he were, didn't have that. But he didn't have that. He was, the investigation was going on at the time he was being called onto the stand. I mean, it's just you're asking somebody to get up on the stand and give this testimony that is going to really help these clients he's been working on when he's just not finished with his job. He's not. He wasn't done. He he had too much information. He had too many leads. He had too much stuff to follow. And I think at the end of the day, he got up and he gave some, like you said, some vague stuff. Well, there's these people who said the drawings looked like this person. There's da-da-da-da-da. And he was kind of hammered by by cross-examination in some ways. And, and, you know, we don't know. That was it. He was excused. It was, you know, we were going into, this was this, they were going to go into the weekend and, this was the end, you know? And what is so surprising is that this is day 10 and coming back to, you know, coming back to trial, Wyatt had these plans. He was going to call Tommy's sister. He was going to really push this other individual that they were kind of, they were hammering on that they thought was involved. And instead, Don Wyatt rests, you know? He comes in. He has been... The defense was up for three days. After the DA's office went for eight days, you only have three days of trial for the defense attorneys, you know. And coming into the the 11th day, they they rest. They decide not to put Trisha on the the stand. They decide not to pull in this other individual who they really feel is involved. And, and after Don Wyatt rests, the shocking thing to me is that now George Butner has the opportunity to, pr- to present evidence. And, you know, we already discussed George Butner had no money for Carl's defense. And so he was really relying on Don Wyatt's investigation. But he doesn't have any of his own witnesses. He doesn't have any character witnesses for Carl. He doesn't have any alibi witnesses for Carl. I mean, all the things that he could do without an investigator, all these things that are still important to the case, nothing. George Butner gets up and he rests his case based on what Don Wyatt said. And that's it. I mean, and there are times that I, when I hear, I feel like it's, I forget that Carl's also on trial because I feel like his presence is so low during this trial. His attorney is not very involved. His, I mean, granted, he doesn't have the the resources, but still, he was paid some money. If he didn't have Don Wyatt's office, there would still be work that needed to be done. And not, and, and we don't hear, I mean, Carl, we know, has no family. No one has come to see him. You know, Tommy's writing poetry, and Carl is not really, there's just nothing really coming from him. And, I think we see that with the way his attorney handles it at the end, that there's just, there's nothing said about it, and it just kind of ends there. And so after his attorney rests, then the state has the opportunity again to present evidence to rebut 
what has been said by the defense attorney. And it's pretty quick. It's pretty short. The state gets up and they basically uh, call one witness who pretty much is up there to say that all of these leads that the investigator wants to follow up on are, you know, wrong or pointless or whatnot. And that's it. They leave it at that. And I think we're going to leave it at that right now, too. On next week's episode, we are going to talk about the closing arguments that came next. And then after jury deliberations, what was the verdict for Tommy and Carl? What happened after this trial? See you then. Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel.